When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. She was close behind it when she turned the corner, but the rabbit was no longer to be seen. She found herself in a long, low hall, which was lit up by a row of lamps hanging from the roof. Over there, there's an amazing-looking tree in the corner of the garden, and you can easily imagine the Cheshire Cat appearing on one of those branches, can't you? I felt very much that uh, I was being invited to the very, very long tea table, and up at the one end was the... John Tenniel with his wonderful sort of walrus moustache pouring the tea and there were all the rest of us who had followed on illustrating Carol's work and I was right at the end and my job was to join the gang so I felt reassured by that. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversations? That, of course, is the opening sentence of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, which, together with its sequel, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, are two of the best-known and most-loved works of children's fiction in the world. The stories and characters have become so familiar they seem to have a life of their own. The book's literary significance has been compared to the novels of Proust and Joyce, and Carol has been ranked with Sigmund Freud as a pioneer of the cultural movement that placed the child's story at the heart of adult culture. They are often considered classics of children's fiction, but W.H. Auden once said that there are no good books which are only for children. And Virginia Woolf went further. She said, The two Alices are not books for children. They are the only books in which we become children. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode I'm going down the rabbit hole and through the looking glass to explore the extraordinary wonderlands of Lewis Carroll. I'm standing on the bank of the River Thames, just outside the city of Oxford, on a beautiful, sunny morning. And it's my pleasure to introduce our guest for today's episode, Chris Riddell, illustrator, author, political cartoonist, From 2015 to 2017, Chris was Children's Laureate of the UK. 
He's known for his collaborations with authors such as Neil Gaiman and Paul Stewart, but also for writing and illustrating his own books, like the Ossoline series, the Goth Girl series, and the more recent Cloud Horse Chronicles. Chris has won the extremely prestigious Kate Greenaway medal three times, which is unprecedented. And he recently produced two lavishly illustrated editions of both Alice books for Macmillan, who were the original publishers of Alice and Through the Looking Glass in the 19th century. In the big, spectacular v exhibition recently, all about Alice, called Curiouser and Curiouser, Chris's illustrations feature throughout. So really, I can't think of anyone better to be joining us today to talk about Alice and Lewis Carroll. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Henry. And we're, we're standing, aren't we, on the riverbank and actually right next to uh, a fantastic sort of bramble hedge. And I can imagine a rabbit hole somewhere very yes. close by. Yes, you can imagine uh, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and over there would, would be sort of, you know, Alice Little looking up and, and seeing... Uh, a sort of pair of white ears emerge yes. from the brambles. And white thinking, ears and pink eyes. Yes. And... Am I seeing things? Mm, <laughs> absolutely. Chris, what's your earliest memory of the Alice books? Did you like them as a child? Uh, I did. I did. And my earliest memory um, was of being read an edition of the Alice books that were back-to-back. Okay. Um, and uh, I remember my parents reading to me at bedtime. First, Alice in Wonderland, and then you'd flip book over and there was through the looking glass on the other end. see, they were back to back. They were back to back in that sense, Henry. And, uh, oh. But what they'd had, which absolutely captivated me, was the original uh, John Tenniel illustrations. Yes. And so as the book was read to me, I was looking at the illustrations mm. and utterly sort of captivated by this strange world, you know, the world of the sort of Victorian Gothic. You know, just these amazing line drawings with their detail and their incredibly sort of realistic and characterful yes. drawings. And I got to a, a point where I became rather obsessed with the White Rabbit. Um, and I would look at the frontispiece where the rabbit is standing, looking at his pocket watch, mm. um, sort of saying, you know, I'm very late for a, an important date. And... Uh, I was just mesmerised by the characterisation, the uh, the look in the rabbit's eyes, uh, the sort of sense of timidity and the, the, the quivering that, that, that seemed to run through the drawing. And so I started to copy it. And I, I attempted to decipher the lines and, and work out how on earth this picture could, wow. could sort of convey that sort of character just through the use of lines and what I later found out was cross-hatching. And I even went out and asked my parents to, to buy me a dip pen and ink so I could sort of experiment. What with age were you to, roughly? Uh, of, well, child, uh, very young. I'm far too young to be given a very sharp object like <laughs> a dip pen. Um, I, six, six wow, I, wow. I would have thought. But it was interesting that what I had was the voice of the book being read to me. Um, and then I was looking at the illustrations. And to me, they were one and the same thing. There was no author and illustrator. There was just this book, this book. Um, with Alice. And it was only a little bit later I started to realise there was a person who illustrated the book who wasn't the author and that this was a sort of collaboration and How that piqued my interest. I can completely imagine that because they're so of a piece, aren't they? Those John Tenniel illustrations which appeared in the original editions. And they're so familiar. They, they work so closely with the text. You know, it's so appropriate, Chris, that you've recently illustrated the Alice books because 
like John Tenniel, as well as illustrating, you're also a political cartoonist, you're, you're a satirist, and he was the same. He, he illustrated for Punchman. He was, in a way, the greatest political cartoonist of his day, wasn't he? John Tenniel, certainly. Um, and and poss- possibly it's inappropriate that I should illustrate <laughs> it. I mean, that, that, that was a sort of worry I had. Um, because the Tenniel illustrations are just so iconic. Mm-hmm. And iconic to me personally as well. Mm. So the uh, idea that I should illustrate it, you know, sort of filled me with with a sort of certain amount of professional dread. But I thought when I came to illustrate it, I started to do research. I started to look at all the other editions of Alice that I could find, many editions I could find. And I looked at the beautiful Arthur Rackham illustrations. Mm. I looked at the wonderful Tove Janssen of Moomin fame, her illustrations. I looked at Ralph Steadman and his fantastic, sharp uh, dip pen sort of splattery, crazy. Yes, yes. Um, And I started to realise that in a sense... This was a community of illustrators spanning the years, and that I felt very much that uh, I was being invited to the very, very long tea table. And up at the one end was John Tenniel with his wonderful sort of walrus moustache, um, <laughs> pouring the tea, and there were all the rest of us who had followed on illustrating way. Carol's work. Uh, and I was right at the end. Um, <laughs> uh, they'd put down some you know, bread and butter and a cup of tea for me, and I was being poured some tea. And my job was to join the gang, so right. I felt reassured by what that. What a wonderful image. I love that. That's fantastic. Let's, um, let's take stock of where we're standing at the moment, because one of the best-known aspects of the Alice books is how this story was first told. And, of course, Lewis Carroll is the pseudonym of Charles Dodgson, who was... In 1856, he was a 24-year-old mathematics tutor at Christchurch College in, at Oxford University. And in 1856, he met the new college dean's three young daughters, Lorena, Alice and Edith Little. He made friends with them, and he was just learning the new art of photography. He took photographs of them, he invented games for them, and he often took them on rowing expeditions. And famously, on the 4th of July, 1862, they rowed from Christchurch up the River Thames to Godstow, just near where we're standing now, when Lorena was 13, Alice was 10, and Edith was 8. It's a beautiful sunny day today. We can see the sparkling blue River Thames flowing between rather sort of low green banks. We're looking across the floodplain of Port Meadow here. It's, a, it's still a beautiful, untouched scene, isn't it? You can picture them rowing past us today. Uh, you, you, you can, Henry, more than that. You, you can actually see the little sisters in the portraits that Dodson took of them. And it's fascinating. I looked at those photographs um, often when, when I was illustrating my edition. And you can see the dynamics between the sisters uh, Lorena, I think, is a young lady. A vict- mm. you know, already, you know, she's 13, but she looks mm. as if she's sort of taking on the airs and graces of a, uh, a fine sort of uh, Victorian woman. Um, and the little sister still has the ringlets of, of the sort that, that, you know, made small Victorian children uh, sort of look like dolls. Right, um, right. And then there's Alice, and Alice mm. has got the most extraordinary haircut. It's very modern. It, it's a sort of bob, I think. Mm. Um, and she stands out, I think, as, as a, a rather sort of exceptional-looking child. And you can imagine, actually, that she would be the one who would prompt 
this mm. possibly shy maths mm. professor to actually sort of tell that story that he might have mentioned. <laughs> Chris, it's, uh, thinking about those other illustrators of the Alice books, it's unusual that you have illustrated Alice as Alice Little, because of course in John Tenniel's illustrations, she doesn't look anything like the real Alice Little. John Tenniel, I think, decided, you know, what Alice was going to look like. And I think as the illustrator and and possibly the senior of the partnership, that was his right. Mm. And I'm all for that. I think that's great. (laughs) Um, I think, um, in a sense, my approach was was to go back maybe to the essence of the story in terms of its its origin. And I wanted to imagine, um, you know, the, the children who listened to this story, because in a sense... Dodgson actually invented um, the modern children's book as a a, a story told to children um, Mm. who would be listening. And Mm. in a sense, every reader since then, reading to their own children, in a sense, becomes Dodson. Mm. Um, And uh, and I think that's a profound invention, in a sense. And it takes uh, us from the moralizing sort of fable aspect of children's literature, the improving sort of uh, uh, literature of children into a much more modern uh, yes. way of, of dealing with uh, stories and, and uh, firing up young imaginations and treating children, I think, as uh, a sort of, you know, people in their own right, as opposed to these little sort of uh, figures who are going to be improved and mm. informed. Mm. And I think that's where, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass mm. prove themselves to be timeless because they really do speak to us directly as children and we grow up with them and we pass it on to our children and that's an enduring appeal that that's not going to go away anytime soon that gosh what a marvelous sentiment and thinking of that original telling of a tale we picture them rowing past us here they stopped just a little way further down the river somewhere near godstow which is just a, a little way away and stopped for a picnic tea and um, famously, she's leaning on her older sister, getting a bit bored. And, and in your wonderful illustration, you, you, you have her leaning against Lorena based on an actual photograph of the three sisters uh, leaning against each other. And then she gets a bit sleepy. We're not quite sure whether she's fallen asleep. And suddenly this white rabbit with pink eyes rushes past her. And she says, uh, burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it and was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge and I think that burning with curiosity is such a that captures Alice right curiosity is a defining yes uh, I I think you're right Henry I'm the other thing I love about that is she's glanced down at the book that her sister is reading and it's just full of all these words (laughs) and she thinks to herself what is the point of a book without you know good conversation and pictures and I think that's a perfect summation of my attitude. Um, you know, what is the point of a book without uh, good conversations and pictures? And uh, and Alice in Wonderland is that, isn't it? It's it, the perfect combination. It is just beautiful pictures and beautiful conversations. You're right. Well, let's head off along the path alongside the River Thames and head into the city of Oxford. She waited for a few minutes to see if she was going to shrink any further. She felt a little nervous about this. For it might end, you know, said Alice to herself, in my going out altogether, like a candle. Let's talk a little bit about how this story on the, you know, we're walking along the bank of the river now, and how this... I was going to say, Henry, this is disappointing. I was hoping we'd be in a rowing boat. (laughs) 
I should be rowing you towards us. I was going yes. to say, with, with a picnic. I mean, you yes, know, I'm sorry. We're doing we're the hard really yards here down. on the towpath. <laughs> but you can imagine them sculling back into Oxford, having just been told this story. And the way that Alice and Lewis Carroll remembered it afterwards is that he would often tell stories, but this was the first time that Alice had requested him to write it down. And so that was in July 1862, and he began to set down the story that he told to the three young girls. And he notes in his diary that he finished writing the text in February 1863, but he was illustrating it himself, and he didn't finish those until September 1864, so quite a long time afterwards. And he finally presented a handwritten manuscript to Alice Little in November 1864, with a little note at the beginning describing it as a Christmas gift to a dear child in memory of a summer day. And then quite quickly after that, he must have had a thought that you know, he might try to get it published because he managed to commission Taniel, get the illustrations, got Macmillan to agree to publish it, and in June 1865, so just you know, about six months later, it was first published in a series of 2,000 copies. Well, I, I think he set a template there, Henry. I mean, uh-huh. inadvertently, I imagine. Because um, ever since, I think, he wrote Alice in Wonderland in that, you know, as a request, it's become a template for writers of children's stories to, to emulate, uh, whether it's... Uh, Kipling's Just So stories or um, the stories that A.A. Milne told his son Christopher. Um, You know, these stories begin, don't they, as as sort of tales told, yes. And then a child inevitably says, well, can we have that again? And so, you know, it is written down. And I think many writers subsequently have thought, well... I've told a story to my children or, <laughs> yes. you know, willing listeners. Maybe I should write it down. Yes, um, yes. And I think that's why Alice in Wonderland so profoundly um, uh, inspirational and also influential. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. We've mentioned once that um, Lewis Carroll is, is a pseudonym for Charles Dodgson, the, the mathematics tutor, and it wasn't used for the first time with the Alice books. He'd used it to publish um, works of poetry in uh, various periodicals. And, of course, where that name comes from is his full name was Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. And Lutwidge was a Germanic family name. He took the English form of that, which is Lewis, and then he took the Latin form of his first name, Charles, which is Carol, and switched them round. So that's how he came up with that. Lewis Carroll. Well, um, we live in that yeah. age, don't we, um, Henry? Where we've all got Twitter titles right. like that. Yes. Um, you know, bear no relation to our actual names. Um, <laughs> That's true. Hashtag Lewis Carroll. Um. <laughs> well, talking about names and, and identity, you know, the main question that the Caterpillar asks her a couple of times is, who are you? And this is a question that returns a number of times, in both books, in fact. You know, she's asked who she is, and there's questions of identity, and she... You know, she says, I knew who I was when I woke up this morning, but I don't know who I am now. And again, I feel like this is a very kind of accurate way of describing that feeling of growing up and not being quite sure who you are from one day to the next. I mean, the caterpillar is one of the great sort of characters in Wonderland. Um, he's small. He, he lives his life of seemingly sort of smoking a hooker pipe 
sitting on a hallucinogenic sort of mushroom. I mean, it's a, an interesting little sort of curious byway that we, yes. we go to. Um, and uh, yet this seemingly sort of small, insignificant creature in the middle of the forest actually plays a seminal role, I think, in Alice's transformations through mm. the rest of the book. I think you have such a wonderful spread in your illustrated book of Alice going through the various growing and shrinking contortions when she's eating the little cake that says eat me and drinking the bottle that says drink me she grows up and grows down and do you feel like the books are in some way exploring the the process of growing up that the physical growing up that happens in childhood? Well it, it, it's a book of, of transformation certainly um, and, and Alice is forever sort of changing her size and proportions yes. um, um, which is both sort of unsettling and exciting at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we go from the sort of uh, excitement of the bottle that says, drink me, and one has to say, um, you know, if you do ever find a bottle that says, drink me on it, don't. <laughs> yes. You know, that, that's a sort of health warning. But, you know, apart from that, um, the transformation she undergoes, I mean, the nibbling of the edges of the mushroom, mm-hmm. um, it's wonderfully exciting, and yet it has its own problems so I really enjoyed doing a spread of Alice experimenting with little bits of mushroom yes growing bigger smaller uh, having limbs distended or shrinking until she gets just right so she experiments and then finds her her sort of true shape but she also goes from being huge in a room a constricted sort of who can forget Tenniel's beautiful illustration of Alice crammed into this tiny room? In the White Rabbit's house. In the yes, White Rabbit's yes. house. And in fact, um, Lewis Carroll's previous, his own illustration of uh, that scene she, where she's completely filling the page. Yes, with, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's a marvellous illustration. Mm. And it really conveys the sort of horror. It's mm. almost a childish nightmare in the sense of sort of being out of proportion, being sort of constricted. Uh, it's, it's the most claustrophobic image one could imagine. Yes. But she then, I think, goes a little too far because she actually runs from the house um, and all the the white rabbit and his uh, wonderful guinea pig retainers are standing outside. And it's never explicitly said in the text, but I think she, at this point, is really tiny. So she runs past a guinea pig, but she's, you know, the size of... An insect. Well, she must be because she then meets a caterpillar exactly. and it's a similar size. Yes. And your illustration of that is so good because it, it's re- it's a terrifying moment actually. And when you look at that moment in the book in isolation, it's I think it says that all this gang of animals, which are much bigger than her, all make a rush at her, and she has to run as hard as she can to get away from them. And you really convey that in your illustration. You know, you have these sort of hulking guinea pigs, and she's she's escaping from between them. But I think this is what's lovely about exploring. Um, a text like Alice in Wonderland, uh, because it's been so well illustrated in the past, yeah. uh, there's a tendency to imagine that it is just a collection of iconic tenual illustrations that are then reinterpreted by Rackham and interpreted uh-huh. by Stedman and the great illustrators. But in fact, there's an awful lot of narrative detail still to to mine in, in the stories. Um, and I really enjoyed sort of finding those... I suppose, nooks and crannies yes. to, to explore. Well, it, honestly, but 
you know, I've never seen editions of Alice which have so many wonderful illustrations and you really, you immerse yourself in the stories by reading them. Now, we are recording this on a, on a cold and wintry day and um, let's just talk briefly about the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, which was published a few years later in December 1871. We're we're doubled up at the moment. We're going past the sort of, you know, sheep wash sort of bridge of some sort. It feels like going down the rabbit hole. It does, Um, actually. We're we're rocking underneath the railway lines. And we're getting close to the Rowley Road Swing Bridge, um, which they're working on at the moment. You can hear activity going on. I mean, interestingly, the train station at Oxford was quite a new addition to the city when Dodgson was writing these books and he used to take train journeys with the three little sisters he recalls in his diary an occasion in uh, June 1863 when he, uh, he says Ina, Alice, Edith and I walked down to Abingdon Road Station and so home by railway, a pleasant expedition and of course, there's a great sequence in Through the Looking Glass where they uh, absolutely um, uh, they, catch they, a train. Alice is on a train in a railway carriage. She sort of jumps over a small brook that uh, the demarcation line between the different squares on on the checkerboard yes. landscape. And suddenly, she is on board a train. We don't know, you know, exactly. Yes, how it's she a gets surprise there. sort of edit, isn't it? It's oh, suddenly, um, it's, it's a book of edits. You know, uh-huh. Alice will suddenly in each square be in another situation. Yes. So it's got that dreamlike quality that echoes Wonderland. It's also got a slightly different tone, I'd say. It's slightly darker, slightly more melancholy. Did you sense a shift in tone when you were moving from one book to the next? Yes, completely. And, and it's there in the text. Um, Wonderland is access through a rabbit hole on a beautiful summer's day uh, picnic by the river. Um, whereas the Looking Glass land is accessed mm. through an interior um, mm. on a wintry day. And then we, right at the beginning, have this extraordinary sort of dark and grotesque poem yes. that is also wonderfully funny. Um, Jabberwocky. Called Jabberwocky. Yes. Um, and I think that's what caught my imagination. And when asked, there are two camps, Henry, always. Yeah. The people who love Wonderland and the people who love Looking Glass. For me, I've always been on the Looking Glass side. Interesting. I love the strangeness. Mm. Uh, I love the poetry in Looking Glass. There's some wonderful Uh, songs. Some of of his best. A bit later in his life, Carol was asked to write an article for the stage periodical, and he thought about the kind of cocktail of characteristics that he'd put into his character of Alice, and he said... um, Loving first, loving and gentle, then courteous, courteous to all, high or low, grand or grotesque, then trustful, ready to accept the wildest impossibilities with all that utter trust that only dreamers know, and lastly curious, wildly curious, and with the eager enjoyment of life that comes only in the happy hours of childhood. Do you think that sounds fair? That sounds pretty spot on, I would say, Henry. And, and it is what we love about childhood, about, um, about children in literature, is, is a sort of sense of innocence and wonder, but also questioning. 
Yes. Um, and there's great wisdom, I think, in, in the right question asked to the right person, um, or possibly the wrong person. Um, <laughs> well, we're just, we're still walking along the, the river here, but we're just entering the city of Oxford. And it reminds me of something I heard Philip Pullman say, the author Philip Pullman, who lives in Oxford himself. And I remember him saying that it's no surprise that Alice's Adventures in Wonderland came out of Oxford, because Oxford is a city of hidden doors and, and secret corners. And, you know, there's that amazing moment in Alice's Adventures when uh, she bumps into a tree with a door in it, steps through the door and is back in the hallway with um, the little glass table. And there's a sense in Oxford where, you know, you almost think you could walk through one of these walls and step through a secret door into another place. But also, Henry, I think the, the scene very early on when Alice looks through the tiny doorway, yes. she can't get access to yes. the absolutely beautiful... Right. What I think is an Oxford quad on the other side. Yes. Um, you know, you can see it. You see it all over Oxford. Yes. You walk past these and you think, well, that looks like a lovely... No, no admittance, you know. <laughs> yes, um, how you can't, you can't come in. Um, and yet you glimpse this all yes. the time. And I think that's a very Oxford feeling. You're absolutely right. Well, let's head on into the city. And uh, we've got a very important date that we can't be late for. So we've just turned into Pembroke Street, which is really gorgeous Oxford Street with gabled houses leaning over it in a very old-fashioned way. And halfway down here, I think we're going to come across the Story Museum. Yes, here it is. And I think that we're expected inside. Sophie, hello. That's very good timing. I'm Henry. Very nice to meet you. And you know Chris. So we've come into the Story Museum now. We've had a wonderful tour up through the Whispering Wood and the Enchanted Library. And we're now um, sitting with Sophie Hiscock, the Director of Communications of the Story Museum. Sophie, thank you so much for welcoming us to the museum. It's lovely to have you with us. Sophie, can you just tell us a little bit about what the Story Museum is and how it, how it works here in Oxford? Well, the Story Museum is a most unusual place. Uh, and what we try and do is we try and capture the magic of stories in a mm. tangible way. Mm. So we invite visitors to come and literally step into stories and find themselves in story worlds. And it just rekindles the imagination and kind of the, the love of, of the fictional and the world of the imagination. Well, we've really got a sense of that just walking up through the museum today. And then it's also full of school children clearly having an amazing time here. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the museum? What, how did it come to be in, situated in Oxford? Does this feel like the right place for this museum? Um, it would be hard to imagine a more perfect place than Oxford. So the Story Museum came into existence because our founding director, Kim Pickin, mm. had a, a germ of an idea that wouldn't leave her alone. Uh, and she kept thinking, wouldn't it be great to have somewhere that celebrated story? And Oxford is the perfect place, um, not least because of its really strong tradition with fantasy. Um, so from kind of Lewis Carroll and Alice, you go through to the Inklings with C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, right through to the modern day with Philip Pullman. Yes. So there must be something in the water of Oxford <laughs> that encourages people to explore other worlds. And the other reason I thought it was just perfect to talk to you was um, that each year you organise an Alice Day 
in July to celebrate these books. So tell us about Alice's Day. What what happens on that day? So Alice's Day is a completely crazy day that happens once a year and it always happens on the first Saturday of July. So it's as close as possible to the date when Charles Dodgson first told the story of Alice Mm -hmm. um, on the river trip. Um, And it has grown and grown. It's been running for over 10 years now. And the whole city joins in with it. So all of the kind of community partners. I'm, I'm rather shocked that you should say that Alice Day is crazy. I mean, <laughs> earth does that happen? I, I, I find that very hard to believe. Um. It's certainly full of the unexpected. <laughs> and not least the, the people who come to it. I mean, Alice clearly evokes such um, affection amongst such a broad audience. And the thing that is particularly lovely about Alice's Day is the intergenerational aspect of it so you've got kind of grandparents introducing their grandchildren to it you've got children who know about Alice through kind of Disney and through the books Um, and international tourists who come specifically for Alice. I was going to say a a whole other sort of subculture of sort of Alice in Wonderland cosplay and extraordinary young people who, who dress up uh, parties as, as sort of the Mad Hatter. Absolutely. To be honest, we, we're put to shame. So on Alice's Day, the entire staff of the Story Museum dress up as characters. Um, but we are put to shame by the costumes that our visitors come in. I mean, they are extraordinary. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, you know, the legacy of these books. There are just a handful of fictional characters who get off the page and become part of the common imagination. I think Alice and her the characters she meets are some of those characters. And it's amazing that there have been so many adaptations of these books. There have been so many films made of them, so many songs written about them. Uh, so many illustrators have come to these books and, and provided their interpretation of it. Sophie, why do you think people are so drawn back again and again to these stories and these characters? Um, I think because the the characterisation is so strong. I mean, Alice herself is a thoroughly believable child. Mm. She's quite grumpy. She's quite stroppy. She, she takes against this strange dream world that she's found herself in. She's quite indignant that the rules don't apply and that she's, you know, expected to abide by what she sees as complete nonsense. And, and in the end, she asserts herself at the end of kind of the, the first book, you know, she tells them you're nothing but a pack of cards. And I think we all love a kind of feisty heroine who kind of asserts herself at the end. Do you, Chris Ansever, do you have a favourite adaptation? I mean, from the very beginning, it's been performed, this story. Lewis Carroll was involved in the adaptation of the first stage adaptation, Alice in Wonderland, a musical dream play in 1886. But there have been so many versions of these stories over the years. Do you have a favourite? My favourite has got to be Jonathan Miller's um, yes. adaptation, which is gloriously dreamlike. And I love, in a sense, the, the, the sort of neutrality of Alice through that um, and the sense we're listening in on the conversation she's having. And so, then that, it's, so that was made in 1966, wasn't it? Yeah. Shot in black and white. And rather brilliantly, none of the animals are presented as animals. They're just Victorian Well, they're very, very fine actors, Mm. often Mm. classically Mm. trained, um, which is wonderful. Yes, well, possibly one of the least classically trained (laughs) actors, but, you know, it's just full of great faces um, and characters, and it feels as if one stepped into Christchurch, into the common room, and it's just full of these these characters. The mock turtle has just sort of come in from sort of teaching. John Gilgood, I think, uh, has a mock turtle. Yeah. 
So, do you have a favourite? Uh, well, funnily enough, the yeah. Jonathan Miller was uh, the first sort of um, film version mm. I ever saw because my parents were very fond of it. Um, and it has that amazing music score as well. By Ravi Shankar, completely yes. Completely otherworldly. Yes. Um, but I have, um, in 2015, for the 150th anniversary, um, a Japanese artist called Hiroko Hana did a very beautiful scroll of Alice um, and it captures some of that quality and it's also in black and white um, and she drew Alice Liddell as, as Alice and that for me captures again that sort of magical otherworldly quality. It is, it is an amazing, I feel like no other book has been adapted in so many different formats you know from plays to operas to ballets to fashion design to computer games. It, you know the Alice characters are just everywhere around us. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for welcoming us to the Story Museum. We really appreciate the visit, and you're doing amazing work here, and it's been a privilege to, to see a little bit of that. We're going to carry on on our, our walk now, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for jumping down our rabbit hole. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So we've left the Story Museum now and we've turned right onto St Aldate's and we're passing right in front of the extremely impressive frontage of Christchurch College, Charles Dodgson's college and in fact actually if we pause here we can we can imagine Dodgson looking out of his rooms which were in the north west corner of this quad looking onto St Aldate so it's some of those windows up there and it was on the roof of this part of the 
building that he constructed a little uh, photography darkroom that he would use for developing his photographs. And people would, you know, ask to come to his rooms in order to see the fireworks, um, you know, across the city of Oxford. And so we can imagine him looking down on, on where we're standing right now. We've arrived at Christchurch College now, and we're really privileged to be being shown around by Patty Stansfield. Thank you so much for greeting us. Delight. The buildings <laughs> kind of welcome anyway, aren't they? They absolutely are. They're looking stunning today. But thank you very much yeah. for leading us around. So we're stepping into staircase seven. It's rather exciting. This is these are the steps that Charles Dodgson would have taken. Wow, okay, so we're, we're in a corner room in Tongkwad with beautiful patterned curtains over the windows. It's a large room with windows on two sides, and I, I can see a little door into a, into a kind of pantry kitchen room. And wow, so these were the rooms that Lewis Carroll would have used. We're very lucky to have been led in here by the uh, vice president of the graduate common room, which this is today, Lucas Hoffer. Thank you so much for letting us in. Yes, thanks for coming. Lucas, would you just describe the room to us? What does it look like today? How is it furnished? Uh, yeah, so we have some, some old kind of leather couches in this room and uh, kind of an old classic common room look. A lot of the uh, uh -huh. MCRs at uh, Oxford, they're more modern, so people really enjoy kind of the old style of this room, but lots of old paintings, a few artifacts, this clock and this cat are, are prized possessions in the, uh, in the GCR. Yes, well, yes, there's a sort of shades of a Cheshire cat with that Egyptian-looking... Uh, uh, and and some very stern-looking portraits of sort of rectors of some sort looking down on you, just making sure you don't have too much fun at the piano. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a piano here. And I've seen pictures of this room with a chessboard set up as well. You could imagine a... Um... Yeah, most nights, actually, there's been people playing chess here. So, okay. yeah, they love uh, they loved oh, a little, little match on the table right there. While we're here... Chris, you know, looking through the um, door towards tea making facilities, it's noticeable, isn't it, how often tea time crops up in these two books in Alice's Adventures and Through the Looking Glass. There's a bread and butter fly and um, there's a moment where the White Queen repeatedly says bread and butter, bread and butter, bread and butter and, and has that famous line about jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never jam today. And we learn early on in Alice's Adventures that Alice always took a great interest in questions of eating and drinking. And of course, right at the heart of Wonderland is the tea party uh, with the hatter and the, the hare and the dormouse um, who tells us this wonderful story about the treacle well. Uh -huh. um, again, a food-based yes. uh, uh, metaphor. And you feel that particularly perhaps for Victorian children, tea time was a, was a major fixture of the day. And... and Charles Dawson would often invite people for tea in these very rooms where we're sitting. One of his later child friends, Isa Bowman, recalls him making tea in these rooms. She writes, He was very particular about his tea, which he always made himself. And in order that it should draw properly, he would walk about the room, swinging the teapot from side to side for exactly ten minutes. The idea of the grave professor promenading his bookline study and carefully waving a teapot to and fro may seem ridiculous, but all the minutiae of life receive an extreme attention at his hands. 
That's a nice little moment. And so maybe it's no coincidence that that tea party is the central episode and the most famous episode, perhaps, from Alice in Wonderland. And I, I would say, Henry, that is ridiculous, uh, walking around waving a teapot. Um, so, uh, yes, maybe his sort of eccentricity we know is reflected in his work. Lucas, I wonder, can I ask you to um, read out a little passage? Because uh, another of Dodgson's later child friends recalled a moment when she felt she might have inspired the opening of Through the Looking Glass... This is a friend in 1932 recalling a moment in the 1860s. Now, he said, giving me an orange. First, tell me which hand you have got that in. The right, I said. Now, he said, go and stand before that glass and tell me which hand the girl you see there has got the orange in. After some perplexed consternation, I said, the left hand. Exactly, he said. And how do you explain that? I couldn't explain it. But seeing that some solution was expected, I ventured... If I was on the other side of the glass, wouldn't that orange still be in my right hand? I can remember his laugh. Well done, little Alice, he said. The best answer I've had yet. Thank you. Excellently read. And yet, strange coincidence that this child friend was also called Alice. And so using this room today as a graduate common room, do you ever think about the fact that it was uh, once Dodgson's rooms? Is it important to you that that was uh, the connection? To be honest, I didn't know until today that it was Dodgson's rooms. It's okay. always built as Einstein's room, so I think that's probably you know overshadowed the fact oh, that what? he lived so, in these rooms as well. So Albert Einstein used these rooms as well? Yes, uh, he lived here when he was a research student. Oh my goodness, what incredible hallowed walls we're, we're standing within. That's extraordinary. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for letting us into the graduate common room and to see these rooms which Charles Dodgson made his own. It's a real privilege. And I think we're going to move on now towards another part of the college. So Thank you very much indeed. Yes, thank you for coming. Alice thought she had never seen such a curious croquet ground in her life. It was all ridges and furrows. The croquet balls were live hedgehogs and the mallets live flamingos. And the soldiers had to double themselves up and stand on their hands and feet to make the arches. So we're going round to okay. the Okay, great. So we're stepping through a little narrow doorway in a, in a larger gate and into... It, it's a narrow doorway, Henry, that can be challenging to a man of a certain <laughs> width. I'm just saying. Not for Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> yes, no, that is not designed for Humpty Dumpty. Wow. We're stepping into the deanery garden now with an extraordinary view of Christchurch Cathedral. You can hear the bells tolling. And a beautiful sloping lawn, some espaliered apple trees, some lovely flower beds. You can imagine them maybe coming to life and starting to talk. Oh, I can see some beehives over there by the wall. And the flowers, which of course are painted every day. <laughs> of course, yes. So now this is a very important location for the story of Alice, because Alice and her sisters, Ina and Edith, were of course the daughters of the Dean of Christchurch, Henry Little, and on one side of this garden is the deanery where they would have lived and where they'd have come out to play in this garden. Now, on another side, we're looking up at the stunning frontage of the Christchurch Library, and while Dodgson had a junior post at the library, he was working in one of the offices up there, and that was the first time he saw Alice, was out of the window looking down at her playing in the garden. And 
Chris, I feel like, uh, in a way, both books are about getting into gardens. In Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, she sees that beautiful garden through the little door, and, and most of the first half of the book, it's attempting to get there. And through the looking glass, it's a little bit easier to get into the garden and then a bit harder to navigate it once she's there. But I feel like we finally, after wandering through the streets of Oxford, we finally reached the garden that um, Alice was playing in. And it is a beautiful garden, isn't it? It's wonderful. It, it, it's a sort of serene, quiet place in a college that in itself is looking serene in this light. We've got this yes. lovely sort of autumnal light on yes. the golden stone. And it's great looking up at that window and imagining uh, uh, Dodson looking down and seeing the, the, the three sisters playing. And indeed, one, you know, one of the most famous scenes in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is, of course, the game of croquet. And the girls would often play croquet on this lawn. In fact, they'd often play with Dodson and he he came up with a special set of rules for them to play croquet. He and called of course, it croquet in those, castles. In those days, it wasn't illegal to use hedgehogs as, as croquet <laughs> balls. So it was, an, it was a, another time, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know where they got the flamingos from. I mean, that, that must have been maybe the Ashmolean. Or, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and also, of course, over there, there's an amazing-looking tree in the corner of the garden propped up on a number of wooden stilts. And, and you can easily imagine... The Cheshire Cat appearing on one of those branches, can't you? I'm glad you mentioned it. It looks very elderly now. A tree with walking sticks, I think, <laughs> yes. um, propped up, but rather magnificent. No foliage at this time of year, and, and pollarded, I think, within an mm. inch of its life, but, but still very dominating. Is it an oak tree, Patty, do you know? It's a horse chestnut. Oh, a horse chestnut, I mean, okay. the, just the name is just ridiculous. It's kind of wonderland nonsense, because those nuts are not nutritious enough to feed a horse. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and we do know that Alice had a real cat called Dinah, who yes. would quite frequently get... Kind of stuck up. That and Dinah, tree, of course, features said. in both both Alice books, yeah. doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Mentioned in the first yeah. one, and then actually seen in the, in, yes, in the second, right. uh, along with two kittens. I can see in my mind's eye, Henry. I mean, the the, the yeah. Cheshire cat Absolutely. sort of appearing yeah. on one of those magnificent uh, curved limbs. Well, there. it even looks a little like the Tenniel illustration, doesn't it? That and again, another brunch. illustrative challenge um, that Tenniel because he's the great master, you know, manages. But when I came to draw the Cheshire Cat, I was aware of just how sinister a smiling cat can be. And my research took me to the further shores of the internet, where I did find a smiling Japanese cat. Really? And so I had to try and channel that with Tenniel's wonderful sort of uh, Cheshire Cat with the very prominent teeth, which, which... is quite disturbing, particularly as that's the last thing you see as it disappears. Yes. The rest of him disappears and the smile is left it's a, it's disembodied. It's rather a scary uh, image, isn't it? This sort of sharp feline And yet teeth. the Cheshire Cat is loved. Yes, It's one of uh, possibly the most iconic of, mm. of the characters in all of Wonderland. Um, and it is rather benign, I think. It looks after Alice. Yes, It doesn't want Alice to lose her head. It's yes. rather on her side, not the... Uh, not the Queen's. I think you're right. I, I heard once that one of the possible theories of where that idea of the disappearing Cheshire cat came from was that uh, in the 19th century, occasionally Cheshire cheeses would be made in, in a cat-shaped mould. 
And when you were eating it, rather than start with the face, you would probably start with the tail end and it would gradually disappear as you ate the cheese. Where did you hear this, Henry? Because <laughs> it's very possible someone's pulling your leg. <laughs> that does sound saying. like it. Now no, I, say I, it. I have heard it as well. There, oh, are, really? there okay. are many stories. The, I'm thing, sure. the, the version I like most is the fact that you've got Dodgson's interest in photography. Yes. And in those days, it would be as you produce a negative today, but it would have been a plate. And that image slowly emerges oh, as opposed to the instant digital. Wham! Yeah. So, and Alice, we know, went into Dodgson's um, studio yes. and watched this process, and I think that's what he's good at that. capturing. The, the Cheshire well. Cat as a photographic yeah. image, I think, is is that's so clever. And it's also catching the sense of the time because there were so many new technologies that were being introduced, and it's on the cusp of magic. Today, you can check how something works on YouTube. Now, while we're here and on the spot where Dodgson first met Alice. There's a difficult subject which I think we do need to address today, which is the nature of their friendship, their relationship. At the start of Through the Looking Glass, Dodgson includes a poem addressed to Alice, where he writes, Thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. I have not seen thy sunny face, nor heard thy silver laughter. And, you know, there are some facts that we know about Charles Dodgson, which is that Having had this friendship with Alice, he was obsessed with little girls for the rest of his life and would seek out their company. He'd travel to seaside resorts and and on trains he would befriend young girls and then keep up friendship with with letters and so on. We know that something happened in late June 1863, exactly a year after the boating trip where he first told the story, because he'd had this very close friendship with Alice and would come over to the deanery often and they'd, and they'd go on these trips but something happened and those pages from his diary the 27th 28th and 29th of June have been torn out we don't know why we don't know who did it but we do know that Alice's mother then forbade him from visiting the deanery again she destroyed all the letters that he'd written to Alice and in a way it's rather ironic that by the time Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is published a couple of years later their friendship is over. They don't have that close relationship that gave rise to this story. And there's even this rather sad moment in May 1865 where he writes in his diary, I met Alice and Miss Prickett, her governess, in the quadrangle. Alice seems changed a good deal and hardly for the better, probably going through the usual awkward stage of transition. I wonder whether, you know, the, the, the schism was, was one of, of sort of uh, the rumours that, that he might have proposed. Now, you know, the, to our sensibilities, a 32-year-old man proposing to an 11-year-old doesn't happen. And also, I think, a Victorian sort of cult of childhood, yes, which is absolutely. very interesting in both art and, and literature, uh, where the sort of innocence of childhood was, again, to the modern eye, almost over-emphasized in, in a rather sort of sickly sweet mm. way. Mm. But I think that could also be equally a sort of innocence in Dodson's sort of uh, perception. Um, if he indeed did propose to Alice at that stage, well, that would warrant certainly yes. concerned parents whisking her away and would also warrant the uh, destroying of those diary pages. So I think it might be one of these rather gauche mm. acts mm. of miscalculation of, of a sort of friendship that, that he sort of almost took to mean something that it didn't. Mm. Um, I would doubt that it went anywhere beyond that but we don't know we, we can just don't know 
And for me, I come back to the books themselves as a sort of touchstone. You know, what is it that, um, you know, Lewis Carroll conveys in those stories about childhood? What does he convey about the imagination, about the sort of uh, the beauty of storytelling and how it can sort of influence the reader? Um, and I think that's what he should be remembered yes. for. Well, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, in the books, the character of Alice is an extremely strong and, and powerful one, isn't it? She is in control of her destiny, ultimately, in those books. Well, Chris, let's move on now from this beautiful deanery garden to the last location we're going to visit within Christchurch, the Great Hall. There was a dead silence the moment she appeared. Alice glanced nervously along the table as she walked up the large hall and noticed that there were about 50 guests of all kinds. Some were animals, some were birds, and there were even a few flowers among them. So we're now entering the extraordinary stairwell leading to the Great Hall of Christchurch, a beautiful stone staircase. Oh, wow. What a spectacular room. A huge medieval hall with an amazing wooden ceiling. Long, long tables stretching to the end of the room with lanterns on them, a lit fire halfway along and the walls lined with portraits, including one just next to the main entrance of Charles Dodgson himself. There he is, in pride of place next to the main entrance. It's actually a posthumous Oh, is it really? Produced from a photograph. Oh, okay. This is a room that Dodgson would have known very well. He'd have taken his meals here. And um, am I right, Patty, that there are some Alice stained glass windows here? Indeed, yes. So this is the window which has Alice in Wonderland smuggled into it. I think tastefully done in a Tudor dining hall. So you've got the circle top left is of the real Alice. So we're looking up, we're looking up way above us at one panel of the stained glass windows which run along both sides of the hall and little details inside the glass show these characters from Alice. So you've got the real people, as you say, left is Alice and to the right is Dodgson. And then you've got the characters the which Taniel's made so famous. So you've got Alice playing croquet in the corner yes, there. Yes, holding her flamingo. And then the dodo below Dodgson. Yes. And a whole row of the characters at the bottom. I can so see the Queen of the Hearts. the Queen, the Duchess, the uh, March Hare, the Mad Hatter, the White Rabbit, the Mock Turtle, the King and the Knave. And I do think the Mock Turtle is really interesting because you've got... The kitchens downstairs, the yes. original kitchens, and above the fireplace there are real turtle shells from the days when there would have been turtle oh, on the menu. Really? And of course, the mock turtle is named after mock turtle soup, which was a type of soup designed to taste like turtle soup, but actually made from, I think, calves' heads. Yes, hence in the illustration and you've so got Tenniel parts of the gives the mock turtle a calf's head. Yeah. Well, there's two things which strike me standing here. Firstly, if we look below the stained glass windows at the fire, the two brass fire dogs have these long, long necks with heads on the top of them, rather like Daniel's illustration of Alice's neck when she grows so tall. And the other thing it makes me think of with the light shining through these stained glass windows is the fact that Dodgson once hosted a magic lantern show in this great hall at a Christmas party for the children of college servants. And so that's all about light shining through coloured glass and making beautiful images. 
And you can imagine, you know, as a great lover of children, he'd have, he'd have loved that event in this very spot where we're standing. And, and someone who um, entertained his uh, sisters in, in exactly That's right. those he, sort of ways, making little sort of publications for them, but also organising parties. Games and, and parties, yeah. yeah he, was, he's, he had a lovely childhood growing up in Croft in Yorkshire and, and had all these younger sisters who he would entertain, yes. Yeah, because I find it really fascinating, going back to when he was 12 years old, he wrote an opera for marionette puppets. Oh, yeah. um, and it was based on Bradshaw's Railway Guide, of all things. <laughs> oh, so Michael Portillo would have enjoyed that, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, just amazing. So just one of the <laughs> things he did to entertain his sisters and brothers. Wow. Well, now, standing in this truly spectacular hall, it's a good place to talk about the two set pieces with which he ends Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Alice's Adventures, of course, ends with the trial in the courtroom scene with the Queen of Hearts and the King of Hearts presiding over this nonsensical trial. And in a way, it's even more like the climax to Through the Looking Glass where Alice finally reaches the last square of the chessboard and steps into the palace through a door marked Queen Alice and steps into a room just like this one with long tables full of the guests and characters that she's met during the course of the book. We can imagine the king and queen sitting on the raised high table at the end here, and you can picture him basing those scenes on this very room. You've also got that connection with why the little family had almost dump Dodgson, and it could be because he was just a lowly person. This yes. stage, they are entertaining royalty. Yes. They've got Prince Leopold, Victoria's youngest son, actually being educated at the deanery, and it's supposed to be some... Uh, kind of a romantic attachment between the two, but it does show that they're entering a different class Yes, yeah, so talking about kings and queens is not fantasy, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I love the idea of a curate being somehow a disreputable influence <laughs> on your daughter, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, rather than a minor <laughs> European royalty, yes, who would yes, be great. Totally, you know, yes, fine, yes. You know. And he kept himself, decided to stay at the status of deacon, didn't go on to be a fully-pledged priest, because the Bishop of Oxford at the time had banned all priests from going up to London for the theatre life. Right. And Dodgson was not going to forfeit that right. Well, that's amazing. You know, this is making me think of a key element of both books, which we haven't discussed that much yet, which is the fact that they're part of the rich genre of nonsense literature. There's so much nonsense in these books. You know, parodies, puns double meanings, nonsense words. And Alice frequently uses that word. She says, oh dear, what nonsense we're talking. Or, uh, there's that amazing bit where she's talking to the Red Queen and uh, Red Queen compares a hill to a valley and Alice says, a hill can't be a valley, you know, that would be nonsense. And the Red Queen shook her head. You may call it nonsense if you like, she said, but I've heard nonsense compared with which that would be as sensible as a dictionary. <laughs> Great line. Now, I think you've just described the phenomenon of fake news, um, <laughs> right. you know, where the most outrageous things can be given credibility. Absolute credibility. If you say them like the Red Queen in that imperious way, yes, yes, um, and so then, right. of course, we will believe it. But, Chris, how do you, as an illustrator, how do you approach nonsense? Because almost by definition, you know, if you can draw something, then you can picture it, and it feels like it's... Um, I approach nonsense, Henry, uh, joyfully, uh, with open arms. Uh, I embrace <laughs> nonsense in all its forms. Um, I think nonsense makes a wonderful sense a lot of the time, particularly visually. Um, so the thought of kangaroos um, drinking gravy on a table in Christchurch 
dining hall is 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 a lovely thought. Yes, but if these two books are about childhood and growing up in some way, I think there is a sense at the end of both of them where the nonsense reaches a kind of peak, a kind of climax, and Alice, in a really decisive moment, thinks enough is enough. I've had enough of this nonsense. She brings both books to an end rather decisively. The first by flinging up her arms and saying, you're nothing but a silly pack of cards. And then the cards turn to falling leaves, don't yes, they? And yes, she's they back and, on the riverbank. Um, exactly. In the way that one wakes up from certain dreams, I think. Um, those sort of uh, strange... I don't know whether you've been troubled by this, Henry, but anxiety (laughs) dreams where you're sort of trying to do something and nothing quite works and then something in your brain just tips you back into consciousness. And I think that's what's happening to Alice in both books. At the end of Looking Glass, you know, she is so infuriated by the increasingly sort of noisy banquet. She grabs the Red Queen and starts to, to shake her and she shakes her back into the kitten yes and yes. she's back you know in the real world and that as you say that brings through the looking glass to an end and that brings us to the end of alice's journey across these two books so chris to finish off i think we must head out and see alice and lewis carroll off back where they began on the riverbank patty thank you so much for mm-hmm. letting us into christchurch today no and for showing us around it's been such a pleasure being it's guided been around by here you. for centuries for you to arrive <laughs> So we've stepped out of the main part of Christchurch College now and we've, we've come into Christchurch Meadow which is this beautiful open patch of meadowland right in the centre of the city of Oxford adjoining Christchurch College which is probably pretty much exactly the same as it was when Charles Dodgson would come and walk in the meadows. And we're walking down towards the riverbank again, to where the Thames curls through the city. And we know from his diary that Dodgson would often bump into the Little Sisters walking with their governess here in the meadows. And it was from this point on the river that they would have caught the boat for that boat trip on the 4th of July in 1862. So this feels like an appropriate place to be ending our conversation heading down to where they set off in the boat it it feels henry as if we're and when we are we're we're sort of ending with the beginning and for a book like uh, alice in wonderland it's lovely that it begins with an outing with an adventure with Mm. a floating down a river the last time that alice ever saw charles dodgson was um in 1891, when she came back to visit Christchurch, and he was still there. He, he remained a, a don at Christchurch for the rest of his life. And she was 39 years old at the time. She was Mrs. Alice Hargreaves by then. She'd married and changed her name. He sent a little letter to her, inviting her to come for tea with her husband. And she never saw him again. He died eight years later, on the 14th of January, 1898, while he was visiting his sisters in Guildford. And he's buried there in, in Guildford, in Surrey. And Henry, as you say that, did you hear the bell the, the toll? tolling bell, <laughs> yes. It doesn't toll for the... It tolls for Lewis <laughs> Carroll. It tolls for Lewis Carroll. That's right. What an extraordinary meeting that must have been. Um, I would love to have been a 
a sort of fly on the wall as the respectable Alice Hargreaves sat down and took tea with the eccentric Don and I suppose remembered her childhood. Yes. Um, But also this other extraordinary thing, which was what it must feel like to be a character from a famous, famous children's book. Yes. And by the 1890s, it would have been a phenomenon. Oh, Um, yeah. Marketed and celebrated and possibly, I, I suppose... Lewis Carroll's greatest achievement. He he went on to write other books and other books for children with, I think, less success than... Daring to, yes, Hunting of a Snark is a wonderful poem, isn't it? But And which you've illustrated, of course. I have, I have. But Sylvian Bruno, his attempt to go back a to this A stranger book. Didn't yeah. work quite or so well. Or series. It was a series, wasn't I it? I think so, yeah. So, here we are. We're at the riverbank again. And this is the exact spot where... The three girls would have climbed into the boat with Charles Dodgson and the Reverend Duckworth and headed up the stream towards Godstow. Just seeing some rowing eights going past. Mm. But it's interesting that Charles Dodgson made various changes between his handwritten manuscript and the one that he eventually had printed as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And one of those changes comes at the very end of the story, where in the original handwritten manuscript he really situates a story in Oxford where we're standing now so Chris I wonder if you would mind reading out this passage from the end of the handwritten Alice's Adventures underground she saw an ancient city and a quiet river winding near it along the plain and up the stream went slowly gliding a boat with a merry party of children on board she could hear their voices and laughter like music over the water and among them was another little Alice, who sat listening with bright, eager eyes to a tale that was being told. And she listened for the words of the tale, and lo, it was the dream of her own little sister. So the boat wound slowly along beneath the bright summer day, with its merry crew and its music of voices and laughter, till it passed round one of the many turnings of the stream, and she saw it no more. Thank you, beautifully read. And it's interesting that both stories end with a vision of that boat on that day. Through the Looking Glass ends with this almost rather melancholy note, with one of the most beautiful poems in both books, I think. It has that final poem which goes, A boat beneath the sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily in an evening in July. Still she haunts me, phantom-wise, Alice moving under skies, never seen by waking eyes ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Well, Chris, that feels like a good note to bring our conversation to an end. And thank you so much for joining us today on our walk through Oxford and through Lewis Carroll's Wonderland. It's been such a privilege talking to you about it. I've really enjoyed it, Henry, and and the insight that you can only get, I suppose, from going to the real locations, and then sort of using that to go on an imaginative journey. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Chris Riddell, to Sophie Hiscock and the Story Museum, to Lukash Hoffer, Patty Stansfield and Christchurch College, to the Penguin Audio team for the clips of Katie Leung's reading of the Alice books, 
and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'll leave you with this. Many readers have thought that the amiable white knight in Through the Looking Glass, with his gentle face and large, mild eyes, is a self-portrait of Charles Dodgson. And the white knight is certainly the subject of one of the most unusual passages in either book. For one paragraph, the tone shifts suddenly to a mood of anticipated retrospection, and Carol presents a picturesque, romanticised vision of Alice, looking back as a grown woman, remembering her old friend. Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking glass, this was the one that she always remembered most clearly. Years, Years afterwards, afterwards, she could she bring, bring the, the whole scene, scene back, back again, again as, if as if it had been only yesterday. The mild blue eyes and kindly smell of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair and shining on his armour in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.